and welcome to Lave Radio, the world's first official, unofficial podcast focusing on the Elite Universe and the development of Elite Four, Elite Dangerous. My name is Chris Fozzer Forrester, and my fellow commanders joining me in the Sidewinder cockpit tonight are the budding thespian, Chris Jarvis. Hello. The one LARP to rule them all, Alan Stroud. Good evening. And the wolf fondler from the valleys, John Stabler. Thank you very much for your racist introduction. <laughs> How are you all doing, guys? Good, good. Excellent. <laughs> Sorry, apart from being accused of bestiality in my first ever podcast introduction, thank you very much. I, 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 I can't complain. I'm doing fine. <laughs> Excellent, Alan. It's all um, good here, too. We should just say that even though this is our first uh, official uh, episode one, we have actually tried recording this episode uh, a number of times before. So uh, if anybody huffs or sighs during it, you'll know it's due to the fact that they've probably been explaining what I'm asking them uh, one or two times before. But moving swiftly on, we'll start with you, Alan. Tell us a little bit about yourself, sir. How did you get into Elite? And if you backed the Elite Kickstarter, what level did you come in at? Uh, well, okay. To to start, then I, I I saw the Kickstarter at the the start of the off, which was sort of early November, late October, and um, at the time looked at it and thought, "Wow, oh, I wish that comes back. That'll be fantastic." Um, was very busy at work, so carried on with uh, with teaching the students and everything else. As uh, I'm a university lecturer, um, and then got through till the the break for for Christmas. Uh, revisited, had a look at it, and saw it was struggling a little bit. So. I uh, was kind of hoping it was going to get there, and then it started to pick up. And um, at that point, I, I I pledged, I pledged in at eighty-five pounds, and subsequently I've I've upped that to a hundred. Um, so I'm I'm sort of private backing forum and what have you, and all the other sort of bits and pieces in relation to that. Um, and then uh, uh, sort of got on board to to kind of help out where I could later on with um, with some of the the writing and everything else. Excellent. And what was your first experience of uh, elites? Oh gosh, um, yeah. No, I I played the played elite with a friend on the Acorn back in about 1987, 1986, and I used to just go around to his house, and and a lot of the time, I wouldn't even be the 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 guy playing it. I'd be the one reading the manual and sitting there and watching the 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 data screen and pointing out when uh, when something was getting close, or 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 being the one that press the missile button um, <laughs> it was it was just you know i mean that game just just absolutely took my imagination and um i used to when i did play it and i played it later on the amstrad uh when i had an amstrad myself and had a copy of the game um i just used to just to play it for hours just looking for all the little ships and things that were mentioned in the manual like the generation ships and stuff and uh and obviously one in the game. But I was, was going to say, did you actually ever find a generation ship? No, I, I would spend days trying <laughs> to find them. And, you know, and of course I never did. Um, but uh, it just used, to, just used to absolutely grab me because you'd sit there thinking that the ships that you met were perhaps they could be other people. And of course now we're going to get a game that um, where they could be, which would be amazing. Excellent. What about you, John? Um, well, uh, with my uh, story of the Kickstarter, first of all, um, I, I, I followed Elite on Facebook uh, because I've always been a massive fan. Um, so yeah, no, I will mention how I got into it. I I've actually just went through uh, Frontier um, Elite 2 on the Amiga 
um, that's how I discovered it and uh, I was hooked and uh, my, my brother who's just slightly younger than me he was hooked and we'd be fighting over whose turn it was <laughs> um, uh, and then afterwards on the PC I played uh, First Encounters but it also made me go back and, and I did play the, the original PC version as uh, a BBC version so I do have um, an understanding of the different flight mechanics in there but as I said big fan of it so obviously I liked it on Facebook and, and that one night on Facebook something popped up on my feed saying we've got a big announcement tomorrow and lo and behold there it was we're going to make the new game now I've he- I'd heard this before obviously <laughs> um, because um, you know I think David Brabant has always expressed a wish to to make the next elite game, uh, but this was this was different, and this was different because of the Kickstarter, uh, and it and it, it hit the BBC News. Um, it was it was quite big news, and I went straight in at fifty pounds. On I had no qualms whatsoever on the first day. As soon as I knew the Kickstarter was open, I was there. Fifty pounds, brilliant. But shortly after, not because of any fear that it was going to make it or not. Um, I just couldn't help myself, so I had to jaunty, as they say, <laughs> and I went straight to £100 for the early beta access. Um, and I was also glad that afterwards they they're gonna, they were going to reward us with a physical copy as well, um, plus lots of updates. All the updates are going to be free, and, and now they've said also I'm going to get a star map in the box, which is awesome. It's just going to be like Frontier. Yeah, exactly. What What have you got to complain about? Free star map. Uh, deluxe box edition and free upgrades for did they say it was the first two that were getting the free upgrades or was it uh, free upgrades for life can't remember from the kickstarter oh i don't know i thought it was just all upgrades free but i i I might be you know i just i think i heard that um on the forums so it it might have been a generalization i don't know if there have been any announced restrictions they did they did say that there were going to be two expansions and those two expansions were were part of the um, a particular pledge tier, you got them. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's about eighty pounds is around yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, well that's fair enough. But even so, I mean, hopefully the game continues to be a, a rip roaring success, and they'll continue adding stuff after those first two. And to be fair, you know, I won't mind you know, as long as the expansions are a decent quality. I won't mind upping and uh, paying a little bit more for them after the first two freebies. But um, leaves us to our other commander, Chris. Hello. Tell us a bit about your journey. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna come across like a massive outsider here because my experience with the Kickstarter is I heard that there was a Kickstarter uh, and that there would be a game coming, and that's kind of <laughs> until very recently that was everything that I knew about it. Um, and uh, it's really exciting because I've kind of discovered the Kickstarter and I've discovered the forums and there's all this stuff going on and people talking about this this kind of incredible game and it's just. Uh, it's 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 crazy. It's like I found this sort of whole little world that's going on that I knew very little about, uh, and it's exciting. Um, I were think, you? Uh, I was going to say, were you originally a, a fan of the Elite franchise or Frontier? Absolutely. I mean, I think I, one of my earliest gaming memories actually is is Elite on the Spectrum, um, and I was kind of so young when that game came out. I didn't really understand what was going on. I remember flying around. Um, I basically, I think, I can't remember, I think the game started maybe with you doing the docking thing manually. And for me, I think the whole game was trying to land on this rotating (laughs) thing. And then once I'd done that, I was completely lost and I had no idea where to go. And I would kind of quit and start again and then then land the ship again. Um, Really, for me, I mean, it's Frontier on the Amiga. Um, It was my first experience of really 
getting so hooked into a game that I think the first morning I played it, I think I started playing it about, it was a Saturday, I started playing it about 10 a.m. And apart from a break for a sandwich and a drink, I played it all the way through to about 4.30 a.m. the next morning. Crikey. I got about five hours sleep and then got up again and carried on playing for another six hours. And I remember quite distinctly that when I then stood up, I actually fell off the chair. My, <laughs> my legs didn't work anymore, but it was, it was a crazy weekend. <laughs> no, I think that just sort of uh, sums up how immersive the uh, Elite Frontier game actually turned out to be. I, I mean, from my side of things, uh, I, like you, got involved with Elite on the Spectrum uh, and mainly watched my brother play it uh, and my dad play it on the Spectrum. Did get involved with it, but my main instruction was around about uh, 12 or 13 uh, with uh, Frontier coming out on the Amiga. And I remember I had to, uh, every single Amiga magazine that had anything, anything at all in the magazine about Frontier had to be bought and all the screenshots had to be cut out and the uh, the cover disc with the, the rolling animation that, uh, that was played over and over again as I waited for the game. And then... Uh, yeah, the, just the hours of pure escapism that I threw into uh, Frontier was absolutely ludicrous. Uh, unfortunately, though, I didn't manage to get a, a chance to play uh, First Encounters because I didn't have a PC. So we all know that uh, First Encounters never made it onto the Amiga. Um, but because I was such a, a stupid fan of that game, um, I was reasonably early. I was day two on the Kickstarter. Um, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't a fan on the Facebook thing, so I came relatively late. I came with... Uh, the 250,000 other people, um, not people, but pounds that came on day two. Oh, you're such a hipster. <laughs> and uh, I must admit, I went straight in at, uh, at the £100 level, but uh, I did keep on jaunting uh, my pledge up to the, uh, the DDF by the end of it. So I pledged about £300 to, uh, to the uh, Elite Dangerous Kickstarter. And at the moment, I'm really chuffed. I mean, it's a game that we've all been waiting for for 10 years. And finally, it looks like it is actually going to happen. And the stuff that's coming out uh, from Frontier Developments looks really, really impressive. I think uh, just talking about the, the Kickstarter, I think it's, it's fair to say that it was, a, it was a slow start. And David Braben even said himself it was, uh, you know, they were expecting it to be a slow burn. So when they got £250,000 on, on day two, and then everything suddenly went quiet for the middle of the Kickstarter. I think even he got uh, caught by surprise, and there was a little bit of um, a little bit of uh, negativity sort of aimed at Frontier in terms of sort of riding on the nostalgia coattails. What do people think about that? Do they I think, think that? Uh... Well, I, I see. I think partly what that represents is there's a massive hunger for this genre of game because I mean, if you go back, you know, sort of ten, fifteen years, the PC was absolutely deluged with kind of space combat and trading games i mean there were loads sort of coming out all the time um and i think recently i mean i'd struggle to think of a really good game in recent memory that had um that kind of balance of 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 trading fighting sort of traveling and exploring um and i think this is i think like you say this is a this is the game that people have been waiting a long time to play so i think when 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 it came back and not only was it the right genre for elite you know that it was actually elite i think that's just really exciting and i don't think that's something you know that many gamers can resist especially gamers dare i say of a certain age 
<laughs> which leads us on to the next point. Just out of interest, guys, um, I have a feeling we're probably all going to be about the same sort of age. But uh, <laughs> just going around, Chris, how old are you, mate? I'm 35. 35. John? Yeah, I'm 32. 32. Alan? 36. 36. You're going to be the old boy of this, I'm afraid, because I'm 33. So, yeah, at the moment... It's uh, it's quite a firm demographic that you've got there, <laughs> the uh, the early to mid thirties, and I think that was something else that was leveled at the uh, the Kickstarter in terms of, you know, is this just the you know the old guard, people that played the original Elite coming back to support it, and was there enough information? Is there enough sort of catch for you know the younger generation, the you know the Medal of Honor generation or the the God of War generation to come and pick up a, a space sim? Well, I'd hope so. Um, I think. I mean, obviously, the, the the demographic is different in terms of who's who's pledged and who's put the money in. And I mean, you would kind of say that you know, of our age group, there is a a, a sort of a different um, sort of salary level, I guess, at least in in, in sort of general respect, or a a different sort of amount of disposable income. That's probably the better way of putting it. Yeah. Um, the the thing though that um, you know that the game had when we remembered it was that it drew us all in as as children and as as young adults and of course if they stick to those principles then you would hope that that you know that that kind of draw is timeless uh particularly with you know the the thing with elite and the thing with frontier and i think it's already come across from our experiences here is that it's the imaginative quality it's the bit that encourages the kids to to play and then go away and think about how vast the universe is um, that they're playing in. That bit, that's seductive. And, and I'd hope that there's a type of gamer that um, that, that will appeal to, even of any age. No, I think you're absolutely right there, Alan. Um, and I think the other thing that sort of stands out from what you're saying there is the thing that went alongside the Kickstarter. I mean, the other thing that got headlines for was the the writer's pledge, that £4,500 where you could pledge the money and then you could actually get the opportunity to write a piece of, well, what you call fan fiction, but is actually officially sanctioned and is part of the elite canon. Um, going back to when we used to play this game as a kids, and we, we were all imagining our own adventures. We were all trying to figure out who this person was that we were couriering from, you know, Barnard Star to, to, to Lave. Um, they each had a little backstory as you flew from one to the other. And I think with the amount of people that have come forward and said, yeah, actually, you know, I have got a story in my head set around the uh, elite universe. Um, it just goes to show how strong a piece of escapism and a piece of fantasy that actually turned out to be. Well, before anyone says anything, I actually found that quite interesting because although I'm a big fan of, you know, um, all kinds of creative writing and, and, and stuff like that, I didn't actually know until those I didn't understand until those writer packs were offered that there was actually such a market for people who wanted to write fan fiction um, for the elite universe and it was only once I started seeing people taking frontier developments up on their offer that I started to look at some of the interesting stuff out there and I, I, I was quite surprised I think as well there's there's a key distinction here and it's there's a key distinction it's already emerging in terms of um, how some of that work is developing in that the there, there's a very dis, there's a it's different when you are writing something blind um if you're you know if you're writing something as a as an homage to a set of characters who appear in a film 
or something else that you've watched and has made an impression on you and you decide to carry them on in a particular way or you know establish a relationship that perhaps wasn't there um then that's one thing and that you know, kind of touches in with people who who have also watched the film also had that experience and so on but there is an extra enticement in that knowing what you're writing is absolutely going to be connected and in the elite frontier law and that it will be in the the you know the accepted history and universe of the game it becomes part of the canon yeah yeah absolutely and knowing that you know that that's a massive draw for any writer and i think it's really interesting as well that what elite offers is a kind of rich universe um you know this whole this whole kind of, you know, almost the whole kind of culture of the game. And I think one of the other ways that it really differs in terms of fan fiction, if you, you know, to call it that, is that instead of you picking up characters necessarily that are somebody else's and maybe giving your own spin on their, their adventures, I think this is an opportunity for people to really kind of create their own characters and their own events and their own stories. Um, and that it's still part of the universe, but that it's, you know, you're not, you're not writing somebody else's characters you're effectively creating your own fiction within, you know, a kind of agreed universe with other people. And I think the only thing that has really, you know, ever done that before in a, in a massive way really is the kind of Star Wars universe where you've got, you've got a set of rules that people understand and a series of cultures that people understand. And within that, you know, you can create entirely original pieces of fiction, but that is still in keeping with what everyone else is doing. And that's, that's exciting and that's, that's intriguing. But I'm just wondering, um, you guys probably know more about the fiction side of things than me, but I'm just wondering, you know, with Star Wars, you know, you had the lightsaber and you had the force um, and you had these things. And in Star Trek, you had the teleporter and you had the holodeck and all these things. What are the defining parts of the elite universe? What makes the elite universe different to the other um, space sci-fi genre? That's a very, very good question, and probably one that we could spend a lot of time going over. But I mean, there's, <laughs> there's obviously, I mean, from when we used to play it as kids, you've you've got the the iconic uh, ships. You've got things like the Cobra Mark III. Um, you've got the Thargoids. Um, you've obviously got the the image of uh, I'm going to pronounce this completely wrong, but is it the Coriolis um, space station? Uh, all of those things are iconic to Elite, but it's it's more just the the fact that it was it's your first sort of sandbox. You know, all the other universes that you're talking about, the Star Wars universe, um, Star Trek universe, it's all sort of written for you. The thing that Elite had was the fact that you made up your own story. You know, mm. it, it's almost in the same way as uh, reading a book is better than watching a film, because you know you can never get on screen the images that, is, that are, are as powerful as the images that you can create in your head. Uh, and I think that certainly was the case with Elite. Now, it was only sort of wireframe graphics, but the story that you infused that game with was far more powerful. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I think as well, I mean, Star Wars tried to do it. Star Wars tried to, to adopt a similar set of principles when they produced Star Wars Galaxies. Um, they tried to, you know, to create a a perpetual world that allowed you effectively to start carving out your own ideas and your own character for a, you know for a, for an individual who was playing the game so so that rather than you know aspiring necessarily to be a jedi you could just be one of the people who was involved in that universe very immersive sort of quality and i would guess that you know the 
the sandbox that Elite and Frontier was obviously wasn't as well formed as something that's that's a little bit more modern. But now we've got the opportunity to have a game that is a bit more modern and can kind of extend that essential sandbox mentality, allowing the you know the 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 player to um, to think of themselves as a character within that whole whole environment because they kind of are because they're playing with other players. And also allow you know the the fiction elements to to come in to see some stories that can occur, and you know you've got some lovely tie-ins as well that are, are possible. Uh, the fiction itself obviously could tie together, and you might even see some of those fictional characters appearing game. Who knows? Yeah, I mean for me uh, the, the 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 reason I liked you know the elite universe, and I'll keep it brief, um, is just simply because um, there was this kind of attitude that it was slightly more realistic you know it wasn't as fantastic as a lot of other things i mean obviously you had to have things like witch space and hyperspace things like that which enable people to go between the stars but ultimately i mean if you read um a lot of the fiction you know you've got this kind of grimy um universe where it, it seems to reflect humanity um a lot more better than a very polished Star Wars universe, for instance, they thought, you know, as grimy as it could get was the Millennium Falcon. Everything else was very polished, and the same with, and the same with Star Trek, I think. I'd agree with that totally. I mean, you, you're saying, you know, what's iconic about the Elite Universe, and what I remember is just that sense of danger when you sort of yeah. inevitably get into trading stuff that, you know, is illegal somewhere. There's always that feeling you're going to jump into a system, you're going to get caught there's the whole political thing, you know, you get, you get arrested and pulled over by some sort of crazy theocracy. Um, and I think it is, it is like you say, it is grubby. It's grimy. It's, it's a kind of, the game's almost like a sort of hitchhiking culture with picking up these people who want to be taken somewhere else with no questions asked. And it really does just feel like sort of, you know, really sort of exotic travel and danger and politics and intrigue. Um, and th- but the politics haven't moved on from from now, really. Pretty much, I think that's you know where it's a really exciting analogy. You can kind of see, um, you know, everyday life, everyday life in it. It doesn't feel removed. It's great. And there's also there's a there's a really good point that that kind of chimes that a little bit further is that um, a lot of the time when people write books um, or when when new people write books and you haven't haven't much experience about writing, particularly when they're writing in in sort of science fiction or fantasy, the first thing they think they've got to do is explain everything and make you feel comfortable as a reader to be in that world. And actually, a lot of the best books that are written are ones that don't do that at all. They just throw you in and the action is right up there and right with you and you just have to roll with the punches. And that's the kind of thing that Elite did. It, you know, that, that opening of you know, what we've talked about before about trying to learn how to dock it was pretty uncompromising. <laughs> yeah. you know? And by having that as your first experience, for some people that, that's, that's perhaps a Marmite moment and they're going to walk away. But for some people that's, that's a privilege of learning how to do it. And immediately you create this kind of culture of, well, I, I, I figure that out, you know, which actually is, you know, is quite, quite enticing. Absolutely. And just thinking about it, that was probably the first recorded uh, incident of rage quit Something that now uh, I hear quite a lot about in EVE Online, where people have really bad experiences and they basically just take their toys and go home. Um, but rage quitting, I must admit, there must have uh, many, many occasions where I had a stupidly valuable cargo 
and for one reason or other, I didn't have a docking computer on my ship. And just staring at that bloody rectangle going around and around and around <laughs> and just yeah, having the balls to, to accelerate towards it and thinking, it's going to work, it's going to work, I'm going to cash this in and then I'm going to buy myself a docking computer and then I'm not going to be back in this situation ever again and then blowing up on the side of the space station and losing your cargo. Um, but speaking about EVE Online, just listening to what you guys were saying um, about you know the fan participation and, and the fans writing uh, parts of the, the canon, I suppose a lot of people that have been waiting for uh, Elite Four have probably picked up EVE Online as it's the closest, I would say, the closest game out there at the moment to uh, to being what Elite you know, was for all of us all. Um, where do you think Elite is going to differ from EVE Online? I mean, has everybody played EVE Online? or? Yeah, no, I've played it. And I, I think EVE Online replicates again I Frontier is the one I played the most but it replicates it in one way but it, it's very bad in another because EVE Online is it's an RPG game in, and it's very point and click as far as actually navigation is concerned yeah. so it for me yeah it's it's not elite in that sense because the original elite had fantastic dogfighting Frontier not so much <laughs> jousting yeah. Uh, yeah, more like jousting, um, but um, but in other respects, very much like it because um, the stock market is a spreadsheet, uh, just like Frontier was. Um, I tried I tried Eve, and although philosophically I thought it was the most amazing concept ever, the idea that all of these players were in a game, the rules were very minimal. It was very cutthroat. Everyone knew that they could be have you know stabbed in the back at any moment. And it was all about forming alliances, who can you trust, things like that. Um, I just didn't get on with it. And I think it was the point-and-click aspect. I, I really did want to be able to fly a ship. And, and they didn't, and it, you couldn't do that. And that's the fantasy, isn't it? The fantasy is getting behind the controls of something, you know, like back to the old, you know, the old 70s Star Wars with Luke behind the controls of the X-Wing. That's what you want. You want to be the pilot looking out at space, pointing in the direction you want to go. And I agree with you. I think... I've I've always been much more on the side of, you know, the games that I've liked, the Worm Frontier, were things like, you know, Wing Commander. Yeah. Um I really liked the second Independence War, that was really good. And then but then, you know, something like Eve where you're clicking around. And even to an extent, I mean Freelancer. Freelancer came very close, but it wasn't open enough. You know, it was it was very it was very much a kind of story, single player story experience. It wasn't open like Elite. It didn't fire your imagination in the way that Elite does. Yeah, there are specific holes with Freelancer because with Freelancer, um, you went through a linear progression of, of going through the, you know, the, the galaxy that, um, uh, that was established for you. And actually, when you went back to the beginning, you found that it was really easy. So, of course, what had happened is that they'd staged the difficulty as you got more and more experienced and more and more used to the controls and more and more equipment. They'd staged it so that Actually, the you know by the time you you return to to the start, you could just destroy everything <laughs> really easily. <laughs> um, I would say the the one game we're not talking about here at the moment is X Three, of course, um, which is is the German uh, produced the X Universe system, which is the German produced stuff that um, that actually is very similar to Elite in terms of its ideas. Um, but they've not gone for you know they've they've done three versions of the game. It's very polished. You have 
you know, some some enemies that are fairly similar to the Thargoids, but they've not gone for a multiplayer version. Um, you know, they've had all that time and they've they've it's still a, a single player game. Which is quite interesting because um that's one thing that I always thought about when I was playing Frontier and even when I wasn't playing it in between, while I was still waiting for Elite, I thought this game needs to be multiplayer. That's what is required to kind of fulfill its destiny. And I suppose that's why I was drawn to Eve, because it did have that multiplayer capacity. And to be fair, and I don't want to sound like one of these people on the Kickstarter who said, well, if this feature's not in, you know, like landing <laughs> on planets or something like that, then I'm not going to bother. But to be fair, if it hadn't been multiplayer, I don't think I would have been interested because I don't play single-player games anymore. But, but that's just me. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think there's there's going to be challenges ahead on the uh, on the development cycle in terms of how it is that you try and mash together everybody's perfect multiplayer experience. You know, some people out there who want the you know, the ultimate hardcore experience where you know if your ship dies, you die. Uh, and those are the people that say, you know, I want my ship to explode, and then suddenly I miraculously reappear back at the space station, ready to go again with all my uh, all my cargo, and I'll just have another go at it. Um, so to balance the multiplayer issue uh, is going to be quite interesting. I think there was a lot of talk during the kick, uh, Kickstarter around you know, instances in terms of, you know, you could almost choose uh, who you would actually sort of share your experience with, and no other game's really done that, apart from maybe, say, World of Warcraft. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how that multiplayer experience pans out. Well, what they seem to have done is they've, they've taken the instanced approach in a very dynamic way, that they want people to obviously play with other people, maybe even form alliances, but it's not going to be an MMO. They've, they've been quite clear about that. Um, and so that doesn't bother me, as long as I can play with my friends. And the good news is... I can, great. But, uh, yeah, I mean, with, you know, uh, World of Warcraft, that was obviously an MMO, so you could potentially meet anybody who is actually connected to the same server. That is not necessarily going to be the situation with, with, with this with Elite Dangerous. Absolutely. I mean, the development cycle is definitely going to be uh, an interesting one to watch, and personally, I'm quite glad that I'm in the, uh, the design decision forum because uh, there is quite a lot of interesting discussion as to uh, as to how they're going to uh, create all of these different aspects of the game. But uh, I suppose from there we should really go straight into uh, the development news as to what's currently going on. Uh, and as this is our third attempt at recording uh, episode one, there's actually been quite a lot of news since we, uh, we first started uh, recording. So... Some stuff we're going to probably gloss over. Um, other stuff we will spend a little bit of time on, but probably come back to in future podcasts. But current state of affairs, the web app has gone live um, and has been live for probably a, bit, a couple of weeks now. I take it everybody has uh, put in their commander names and their non-player controlled character names. Did everybody get theirs accepted? Yeah. Uh, yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah, mine went straight through. Um, I've I've kind of chosen mine quite carefully, um, but uh, but yeah, <laughs> you know, it's all in. So yeah, is this another one of these things that I know nothing about? Yeah, Chris, when actually <laughs> you put your hand in your pocket and uh, put some money towards the campaign through uh, uh, PayPal, okay. then you will actually get involved with the web app and you'll be able to choose your own commander name um, and okay. also uh, a an option to put your own name, Chris Jarvis, as one of the non-player uh, controlled P- 
people. So in Frontier, where you had the bulletin boards and people giving you jobs, well, the options there, once you've put your money in, that uh, one of those people could actually be Christopher Jarvis, who hands out uh, career jobs to uh, budding pilots. With some sort of space pinpoint, it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or one of those guys that you randomly picked up from one planet and transported to another <laughs> with no questions asked. You would be quite freaky, to be honest, to you know, to, to travel somewhere and then figure out the person I've got in the in the back is is actually someone I know. That's weird. <laughs> or one of those annoying police people that uh, get you as soon as you docked for your <laughs> illegal contraband. So yeah, so you could be. Uh, Chris Jarvis, the head of the police squad on uh, on Larve Station, who always gets uh, who always busts you for carrying the illegal substances onto the station. Well, that's got to be. To be honest, if I have Chris time. Jarvis, if I have Chris Jarvis in my ship, I'm going to eject him and, and create some fertilizer. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I'm useful for something. <laughs> So no, I must admit, I didn't do anything particularly exciting. I got my commander name, Fozzer Forrester, uh, accepted without any problems whatsoever. I didn't go for any of these uh, popular ones, like uh, Shepard, I think, was the most popular for Commander Shepard. Um, <laughs> trying to think, what were the other popular ones that people couldn't have? Well, of course, Jameson's going to come up, isn't it? Um, yeah, well, Jameson you had to actually put down proper money for in order to get one of those. Yeah, yeah they didn't allow any whiskey brands. <laughs> um <laughs> Or my commander Cisco. That was that was out. Yeah, no Picards either. I don't think anybody got a Picard. No, or Janeway. I'm, su- I'm surprised, Chris, you didn't put Commander Darth Maul in looking at uh, your profile <laughs> picture. No, I thought, uh, yeah, so I was very un, uh, uninspiring and just went for uh, for Fossil Forester, although God knows why I thought anybody else would want to have that. I was boring on my commander. I just went John Stabler. Um, and my NPC, I gave a uh, an exotic name to Nathan Spry. Nathan Spry. Does he sound like a pirate? Because I want him to be a pirate. He sounds more like a porn star, in fairness, John. Well, hey, that's fine. Well, obviously the the um, the names will go into a procedurally generated database, so I would assume that they just pop up randomly in in several different things. So it's likely that when you play, you'll you'll see them. You know, one day they'll appear as this, and then another day they might appear as a flower seller somewhere else. So it could be very interesting to think, oh, did you did you change jobs? What's what's going on there? And what's happened to oh, Nathan was... Spry this week? Maybe that could be that a feature on future me. podcasts. Yeah, but th- that would annoy me if I was like halfway across the system and all of a sudden I noticed that Nathan Spry was under <laughs> attack. I'm going to have to go and help the guy out, aren't I? Even though I wouldn't normally care about any other NPC. I, I, I actually <laughs> went I actually went the other way around to you, John. I, I my NPC is my name, so so you know, my name's in the uh, in the system. And uh, my commander name is, is different. There are specific reasons for my commander name, but uh, we might get to those at some other point. But then okay, that means I'm gonna be looking for Alan Stroud now so I can go and shoot him. <laughs> That's entirely down to you, John. You'll you'll know when I've contributed because in the game you'll come across a, uh, a character called Stiffy Everwood, and you'll know. <laughs> you'll know. Stiffy Everwood. Yeah. Okay. I just it would just be interesting whether that would actually be allowed. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't think that could be procedurally generated? I think that's absolutely fine. I'm just wondering whether I could have, you know. If that gets allowed, then I'll be annoyed because there could have been a lot of names I could have got in, you know, like Hayward Jablomi or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry I went there. But maybe we should get on with the uh, 
the development diary news. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Did I get back on course? Oh, dear. Okay, so the uh, the dev diary has just come out this week as well. Uh, and I think we can all say that the, the highlight of the video was definitely David Braben's jumper, which seemed to get the most posts on the uh, on the forum, rather than the, the content he was actually going about. And also his, uh, his man flu as well seemed to get quite a lot of forum coverage as opposed to what he was saying. I didn't know which was sadder, people asking where he bought it from, because obviously they wanted to get one, or the people that already knew where it came from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think the fact that uh, you know we're all the same demographic obviously means that we all shop in the same shop, which is also very alarming. Um, more in common than I think we probably should have. I think, I think though, turning to the content of the, uh, uh, the, the video, it's actually it's quite nice to see that one of the elements that was included was answering questions and I think that's been quite a, a good strength and I'm hoping that that will continue uh, in the, uh, the developing process that, um, that Frontier all, all, all sort of at different levels of, of access and at different levels of um, uh, sort of engagement with the community who are you know, going to be pledging or going to be buying the game later. I'm hoping that, you know, that they will answer questions from fans, they will take ideas from fans um, they don't have to use them, you know. No one's no one's saying absolutely. I know best, but you know, at the end of the day, that kind of engagement was really good, and it was really nice to see it right from the top down. Yeah, absolutely. I think we were all spoiled during the the Kickstarter because obviously we had, you know, we actually had David uh, Braben who was active on the comments section of the Kickstarter. We had Michael Brooks, and they were very very good at sort of keeping that uh, level of dialogue open and answering the questions that came from the community. And then obviously the game got funded, Frontier Development had to tool up and get ready to make the game. And there just seemed for the first few weeks to be a lull in terms of the dialogue. Obviously there was lots of stuff going on behind the scenes. Um, but I think it worried quite a few people that the, the lack of interaction had gone from this massive level on the Kickstarter down to next to nothing in the first few weeks. Now it seems to be coming back where David's actually answering some of the questions from the forum and the, the dev diary looks very, very good in terms of the information they're giving out. Hopefully that will continue throughout the rest of the process. So in terms of the other content in the dev diary, we obviously got the concept art. What do people make of the, the carriers? Beautiful. Great stuff. They're very, very good. I mean, it's great to see. And, and this is the thing. I'm not much of a creative person, so I don't really understand the creative process. But to see that number of... Um, you know uh, that number of sketches done. You know, and and they they discard most of them. That's the thing. You know, they all look beautiful, but they said no, no, no this is the one we want. Um, we may come back to the others, obviously, but uh, you know, and it just goes to show how much effort goes into actually creating something. And I think for me as well, it's interesting. There was one. There was a picture of a. Um mock-up of a ship i've actually totally blanked on its name but it's interesting because obviously in the original game things were kind of in polygon shapes because that's what you can do and then there was this model of this kind of shuttle that was almost still kind of banged together from large plates do you know what i mean it was almost the same kind of polygonal shape even though obviously you don't have to do that anymore but there is something iconic about that you know that sort of um you know, polygon look that that is almost being retained in some of the models. Uh, yeah, that'll yeah be... you guys talking about the um, the actual newsletter now. You're talking about the various pieces of concept art and the ship styles that were talked about. That's fine. In the we'll newsletter. do that first. <laughs> we'll go back to the questions. It's okay. It's fine. Uh, in which case, I think the the ship you're talking about, uh, Chris, is the the sidewinder, 
which does. looks very much like um, like a, like a small door wedge. Um, <laughs> but no, absolutely, the shape of it has stayed very very true to the you know, the original uh, the original games and certainly the Frontier game, uh, and that's what I love. And looking at the the other sort of fighter sketches, there's some that are sort of instantly recognisable as the Kestrel. Uh, the Eagle Mark One and Two, um, so you can see where they're, they're they're taking their inspiration and just taking it through to, you know, the next level. I don't know if they're going to do it, but it would be nice if you know the cheaper ships that you get are more, as as someone said, you know, the polygons. <laughs> you know, they look like they've just been bashed together with some panels, and it's only once you get a bit more cash you can get the nice ones that look like the. Um, there was one that looked like um, the um, the bird of prey. Um, the, the, the Klingon thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, ah, oh, so got to have that in green. That's going to be amazing. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was, I was looking at it, but as you, but as, as, um, as you pointed out, it's, it's going to be great because now that technology's moved on, we can actually have ships, ships which are round rather than just triangles or boxes. But it's, um, that's also part of the aesthetic, isn't it? And I think Chris kind of, kind of pointed that out that actually in, in the original games, that was a limitation of design in the current and, and future sort of, of, of what, what they're producing, then it's no longer a limitation of design. It's now a, um, a, a, an aesthetic. And, I mean, certainly when the, when the early models and, and, and video stuff of the Anaconda during the, the Kickstarter came through, that, you know, that was definitely a, a, a consideration there. They were obviously looking at, this is the way it used to look. We want to keep something, retain something of that, but look at what else we can do. We can do all of this, and you saw that with the with the capital ships. I think it was with the um, the imperial one. It was had a nice round section on it, and I thought that you know that looks beautiful. People are going to want to fly through that. People are going to get want to get up close, and, and that used to be you know how, how many times did you just used to fly around a space station just so you could you know, and now there's going to be these other ships in orbit around planets. Yeah. It's going to have this whole new level of immersiveness how many times do you fly along the length of an imperial cruiser um that was docked outside a space station just because you wanted to recreate the uh the rolling animation that you got on the cover disc on your amiga magazines or was that just me uh but an interesting thing you say about the uh the ships may be reflecting you know the cheaper ships being more banged up and more sort of basic uh, one of the things that David Braben said in the uh, the Reddit was the yeah. the fact that you can now do the procedural generated um, sort of damage effects and also on the paintwork. So as your ship ages, as it's been through more fights, as it's been out in the world, out in space for a longer period of time, it will start getting grubby. It will start getting looking like it's more like the Millennium Falcon than something out of the uh, you know, the prequels of Star Wars and. It was almost, he was saying, it was a badge of honour. So the more bashed up your ship was, the more Millennium Falcon-like it was, the more that you've actually been out there doing stuff. Uh, and again, it's only at this level of technology that we can actually do that sort of thing with, uh, with the ships. He was also, he was saying, you know, it was really nice to hear that the aesthetic inspirations that he had for, for what we're going to, to see was beat-up old Star Wars stuff from the original trilogy and Battlestar Galactica. Because... Mm. Those are the two, you know, those and Firefly are kind of the, the, the things that you go, yeah, actually, that's what we want our science fiction to be like. We want it gritty, we want it dirty, um, because, you know, that's kind of kind of something that, you know, really appeals. 
it's a sort of universe that you can put yourself in. You know, that's been, as we've said before, the main draw of these games, the fact that you can actually put yourself in your commander's chair and imagine yourself being in that universe. And, you know, you can't do that with bright-coloured CGI ships. You, you want the dirt, you want the grit. But interesting what they're doing, and again, it's very early on, but the, you know, the difference in style between the Imperial sort of, you know, sharp, pointy edges and the, the Federation, which seems to be like smooth, sleek lines, bright colours. Um, I wonder if that's going to continue throughout all the various different ships and if there's going to be ships like the Imperial Courier or the Imperial Trader. And then on the flip side, there being Federation ships, which again take on the Federation aesthetic. I hope so. The Imperial Trader was my favourite. It was always my favourite. And that, that's the one I'm waiting to see if it makes a comeback because uh, I, I always liked the fact that it looked a little bit like the Liberator from Blake 7. <laughs> so, you know... I don't, now I don't you are be, showing your age. Yeah, I, d- I don't want to be one of those guys, but if there's no Imperial trade up, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> not playing it. <laughs> you're taking your non-pledge and you're going home with it. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, it was nice to see as well from a lot of the sketches that there was a lot of rotating sections to the capital ships as well. So in some, you know, they're, they're looking more like space stations. So you're thinking, do these are these capital ships so big that they do have this this artificial gravity on? Well, David Braben said, didn't he, in the video that they don't, they're not doing artificial gravity. They don't have it. Sorry, when I say artificial, yeah. I mean only through obviously the uh, through spinning stuff around fast. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the things that is that is interesting about it is that it is it's almost very scientific and very grounded. I actually I did a um, I did a blog post on this um, because it's been a, a a constant thread on the forums in relation to well every other science fiction franchise has artificial gravity why don't we have artificial gravity and it's 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 interesting because the the fact that this is a contrivance you know it is a science fiction contrivance that these other um franchises have elected to use and because people have it in their their subconscious that you know that it's something they accept then they think that 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 this game should have it and that's you know it's like you know noise in space it's like um you know all the, all the other sort of little contrivances that you kind of think at one period of time that, you know, oh, well, that's the way it is. But actually it isn't. It's just the way you've you've kind of sort of soaked up experience of a particular genre and think that it should be. Um, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. There's going to be some kind of science fiction contrivance in relation to acceleration, in relation to G-force or something else. But what not having artificial gravity gives Elite is it gives it a very different style to a lot of the other science fiction uh, sort of franchises, which I think is great. I, I understood what you said there, but just to highlight it for some of the listeners, maybe, for instance, you know, having, um, you know, not worrying too much about the G-forces at, at hyperspeeds, you know, going from stop to, you know, uh, hyperspace. Obviously, you need that if you're going to... Um, uh, have a world where people can actually hit speeds within their own lifetime. But as far as artificial gravity goes, that was purely something that had to be implemented so that people f- filming things like Star Trek wouldn't have to have everyone in harnesses the whole time floating around the space station. It was like, oh, well, we'll just invent this thing so people can walk around on their ships in space. So it's 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 not exactly the same thing, I don't think. It's something that was purely driven by the need for, for filming 
rather than for, for for the actual physics of the real world. I'm not I'm not entirely with you in in terms of that because it also okay. not just filming. I mean, you know, if you take written fiction as well, it makes it much easier to have two people okay, have sure, a, bit of a, sure, yeah. bit of a chat on the bridge, and then one gets up, goes and pours a drink, and comes back and gives. <laughs> okay, you okay. know, it, it 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 yeah, I I completely agree with you. It's a contrivance, and you know, and and it it was a contrivance of you know of getting around an awful lot of things. Um, one of which is the you know the element of of being able to have a, a fairly realistic conversation as we would understand it from sitting around in our, our bedrooms or, or living rooms on earth and you know and knowing that we can walk around and so on and so forth. But in this it creates a whole different set of challenges, a whole different set of stylistic rules. And certainly for fiction writers, that's actually quite exciting. It's 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 limiting in one way, but it's also exciting in another because it means that what you're creating has a very different feel to to what other people would create in another another franchise. I hope I hope really that they the majority of people accept it and and appreciate the aesthetic for what it is. Um a you know a, a stylistic choice that that makes something very different. Um and I hope you know I hope they can they can take that and they can they can immerse themselves. But you know I mean we'll see. I mean obviously there'll be other contrivances in place. You'll have magnetic boots or yeah. or maglock seats or um, you know some of the other sort of things that uh, that have already been talked about. No, I definitely think the things like the uh, the mag boots and stuff like that would make you know, it would make it practical to walk around your ship as long as you could sort of stick to the floor. Drinking tea might be a bit of a challenge though. But I mean the mag boots for me they go hand in hand. You know we were talking about this grimy universe, this almost low tech in a way as far as future universes are concerned, and and the mag boots as a solution because it's good enough then it's great to have in the universe, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, just creating artificial gravity so it's just like being on Earth or whatever. Yeah, but I bet you any money the Thargoids have artificial gravity. <laughs> <laughs> and on that front, uh, maybe we should move into the uh, the DDF. Now, the DDF is going to be an interesting one. It's going to be a bit of a dynamic one. We'll probably change it from week to week uh, based on feedback as to whether people want us sharing exactly what's going on in the DDF or not. Uh, I mean, chances are the DDF were on discussions from Monday through to Friday. On Friday, there is a poll and you get the option of submitting your your response to the poll, which goes Friday, Saturday, results are collated on Sunday and then posted back on the forum on Monday with a new discussion topic. So I don't think there's ever going to be a point where we're actually going to be with this podcast ahead of the curve and breaking any news that hasn't already filtered down from the DDF through to the private backers forum. But um, one of the things that we're asking for feedback is, you know, how do you want the DDF news to be handled? Uh, is it something you want to see in the podcast, or is it something you'd rather um, leave out just for the people in the, the DDF? On this week's podcast, one of the things that we are going to focus on is one of the polls that has closed, and that is the poll for Escape by Hyperdrive. Now, this is one that actually created quite a lot of um, discussion within the forums as to possibly just the element of realism within the game as to when is the risk too much to actually fly. In other words, you know, when do you um, not risk your, your valuable cargo because you might be blown out of the sky by pirates or your colleagues uh, or any other sort of random NPCs? And if you are caught up in a fight, you know, what's the option of using your hyperdrive to escape? Now, I can't actually remember in the original... Elite. I think it was the fact that you could just jump out at any point as long as you had enough fuel and enough distance from your um, your hyperdrive. 
Yeah, you had a countdown. Go. You had a countdown, though. You had, um, you know, the, the hyperdrive engine took an amount of time to engage, and so of course, if your if your shields were going down rapidly and you were under under considerable attack, you had to make sure that you had enough shields left to uh, uh, to make it to the end of the hyperdrive count. And what's th- was that the same in uh, Frontier as well, Anne? No, I think the Frontier it was instant, um, but they introduced the idea that um, if you were in a larger ship. Um, usually the smaller pirate ship would be able to get ahead of you because of the hyperspace cloud analyzer. That's right, and you were waiting at the other side, waiting for the ship to come out. Yeah. Well, the options, just to go through, it was quite a, a poll with quite a few large options, so forgive us for, uh, for just reading them out. But um, the options were the hyperdrive can charge up normally regardless of your combat status. The hyperdrive can be delayed by the ship being attacked, so the charge is basically slower. Uh, the hyperdrive can be stopped by a ship being attacked, so the charge is basically reset if you get shot. The hyperdrive charge can be delayed by using special equipment, such as the ones you see in EVE Online, uh, whereby the charge up is slowed down. Uh, the hyperdrive can be stopped by use of special equipment, so in other words, the charge is reset. The hyperdrive charge can be stopped by use of special equipment, so charge is denied. The hyperdrive charge can be mass-locked by large entities, such as space stations. Uh, such as was in the original elite. Hyperdrive charge can be mass-locked by small entities. All ships' charge is denied. In other words, if you've got a small ship in your area, then you can't jump out at all. The hyperdrive charge can be stopped by overheat, and the hyperdrive charge can be delayed by attacking, so if you attack anybody else, you can't charge your hyperdrive. And your hyperdrive finally can be stopped by attacking. So in other words, your charge is reset if you shoot people, so you can't just shoot them and then run away. Now, before we go to what the results actually were, what are people's thoughts on that? Alan, start with you. Okay, my, my thoughts are that's really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not asking for your thoughts on the uh, the actual poll. It makes much more sense if you can see it. What's yeah, your no. feeling on uh, when you should be able to use the hyperdrive I, I, in Elite Dangerous? I, I, I think um, I'm quite happy with with there being lots of of tension, to be honest. So... I'd go with some form of interdiction because I like um, I like the idea of specific ships being able to to do some kind of interdiction to to prevent you. But um, I think that's obviously that would should be rare. Um, I like the idea. I liked in you know the original elite the idea of uh, of having to wait for this this thing to charge up um, before you could get away. And yeah, I mean if if there's if there's other sort of damage that can occur to to reset the hyperdrive and and stop it from working at some point. And I think as well, you've got to get to decent safe distance from large objects because that was that was always part of the original game. And you know, by having that in there, it encourages you to take a bit of a risk because if you if you could just get out the space station and just immediately switch out into hyperspace, then um, you know, where's the where's the risk in the the system you're leaving on? It might be that there's a risk at the other end, but you know, much better that um, that there's a risk at both. I think. That's interesting. So with your interdiction, would you want that interdiction to be uh, just a piece of equipment that you can put on that would slow an opponent getting away or stop them completely? Or would you want it to, say, take up most of a ship? So you would have to be the interdiction ship and you'd have to have your friends escorting you to where they'd want to drop uh, ships out of hyperspace or stop ships from going into hyperspace. I'd probably um, want six or seven things you could purchase some of them being completely illegal, some of them being the size of half a ship that meant that whatever the ship was, you know, the really powerful stuff, i.e. yanking people straight out of hyperspace, 
I'd want that to make, take up half a ship and stop the the thing from being any good whatsoever. Only good for for sort of grabbing things out. Um, that kind of stuff, really. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Okay, Chris, and what about you, mate? Yeah, well, I think the, this highlights one of the things where you've got like a conflict between, uh, I suppose, what you might call playing to win and role playing, if you like, in the sense that if you're kind of playing to win, you want to be able to leap out hyperspace out you know whenever because you don't want to risk your cargo but i think for me what would be a really interesting choice is to go for whatever makes that encounter exciting so what you want in terms of you know when i talk about fiction here i'm talking about the fiction you create for yourself as a player you want that exciting moment where as the person escaping you're not sure if you're going to get away as the person making the raid you're not sure if you're going to be able to capture the ship before they can escape and I think, I mean, I don't know enough about the, the intricate design of the game to know whether they're going for things like power management, where you might have, as a player, you, you know, choice is very important as a player. And I think if you're making that deadly decision between do I have, like, less power going to my shields so that my engines can charge up faster and I can get away, or, you know, do I stop returning fire because my weapons are draining the battery cells that charge my hyperspace engine... Those kind of decisions are very important as a player, and I think they create drama. And anything that creates drama in a conflict between, you know, in PvP or P versus enemies, whatever, um, I think that's the, you know, I, I couldn't, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough about this to look at those, those lists of, of things in the poll and say, well, this choice here is going to create the best drama. But I think from a design perspective, that's what, that's where the decision needs to be. It's not necessarily something like this isn't about winning. You know, it's not about the most effective gameplay strategy. It's about what makes those encounters dramatic and exciting. And when you, you get out of it, you realize you're, you know, you're short of breath because it was so exciting. That's, that's my view. <laughs> no, that sounds great, mate. And interesting what you said about power management, because it was one of the uh, points that were picked up within the discussion. Uh, and certainly my point of view on it is that, yeah, absolutely your uh, your hyperdrive should be slowed down if you're under attack because obviously it takes you know, a certain amount of energy to open these wormholes in space. You know, the hyperdrive is a big part of your ship. It takes a large amount of energy. And if you're being attacked and the shields are taking that energy to actually, you know, defend the hull, then obviously any energy that's going into charging up the hyperdrive is going to be slowed down. So, you know, from that sort of fuzzy logic idea in my head, it was the you know, hyperdrive should still be possible, but the more that people attack you, obviously the slower that um, you know, that hyperdrive buildup is going to be. Um, in regards to being mass-locked by large objects and you guys saying it should be a bit of a risk, I kind of fall on the opposite way of that. Um, my opinion on mass-locked by large objects, things like space stations, is, you know, by the time you get there, surely the space station is going to be your safe zone. You know that's when you know you should have your 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 mass force of vipers coming out and protecting you if you're being attacked by pirates sitting outside the dock. Because there was nothing more annoying than Eve Online. Again, this is probably going to say that I'm a care bear with an Eve Online, but uh, but you know leaving the space station and just being bombarded by enemy fire that blew you up before you even knew what was going on. You know I would hope that. Uh, in the Elite Dangerous universe, the Vipers would be there straight away to protect you, so at least you can get to a safe distance to hyperdrive out. But in terms of the actual results, uh, this was a multi-response uh, poll, so you could choose a few things. And 
the ones that were actually the highest chosen. Hyperdrive charge can be delayed by the ship being attacked. That got 182 votes. Uh, the hyperdrive charge can be delayed by using special equipment. So your interdiction idea. Um, that, got, <laughs> that got 154. So there were a few people out there who fancied the idea of being able to uh, delay people by using special equipment. There seemed to be a very good consensus around the fact that uh, hyperdrive charge should be mass locked by large entities such as space stations. Uh, so you can't basically hyperdrive out around space stations. be interesting if they say you can't do that around uh, large capital ships as well. And then finally, hyperdrive charge can be delayed by attacking. So in other words, you can't jump out if you start attacking somebody else, uh, which I think is also fair. You know, if you're going to have the balls to open fire on someone, you should have the balls to hang around and see whether or not they fight you back. Everybody agree with those? Sounds good. Yeah, no, such, yeah, yeah. You know, um, I, I, I got a bit of a wind of uh, the fact that you know that that discussion was particularly heated when uh, when it it moved on in the DDF, and um, yeah, no, it sounds like uh, it's come out very well. So that was the uh, for me that was certainly the most interesting uh, poll that we've seen, but there have been a few others, and we'll keep people informed of um, of what they are as we go on through the other podcasts. Right, moving on to our final section of the podcast, the community corner section. Uh, one of the things that came out from the Kickstarter that really, really impressed me was the just the the sheer community and the speed at which the community built up around the project. Uh, the comments page for the actual Kickstarter project was absolutely awash with people on a day-to-day basis just posting comments about their previous experiences of the game, you know, their love for the game, uh, questions about what the game was going to involve. And as we've already talked about, David Braben and uh, Michael Brooks were very active in that. And by the end of the Kickstarter, I'm looking at the page now, there's 122,321 comments posted on the project. And that you do realize that 60,000 then were moaning about there's no planetary landings. Yeah, we'll take out the planetary interaction stuff. And yeah, you're probably down to about half of that. But even so, there was uh, there was a really good vibe, and really good feel that was created during the Kickstarter. I mean, even little things like um, uh, the whole Jaunty meme that uh, jumped up. The simple fact that there was obviously this guy called uh, Jaunty Campbell who you know, was so excited about the project. He placed his money and then came back a little bit later and pledged a little bit more and said, look, guys, I've just pledged a little bit more, and then came back a little bit later and said, look, I found some more money and I've just pledged. So the act of upping your pledge suddenly became to to jaunty your pledge, and the fact that that community uh, interaction then went on, and David Braben mentioned it in one of the dev diaries as jaunty world, you know, that sort of interaction and that level of um, impact from fans straight into you know, the developer was what I loved so much about the Kickstarter. And then going on to the um, the writer's pledge, the £4,500 writer's pledge, it was amazing to see the take-up of that. I mean, that was a huge amount of money that they were asking people to, to basically fulfill you know, their boyhood dreams of writing a story in Elite. Uh, and yet people flocked to it. Obviously, Drew had the, the great idea to start a Kickstarter campaign of his own just to get the writer's uh, pledge money which again got an awful lot of internet uh, discussion about it some good some bad but uh, it just kept the community going so on the one hand you had you know is the elite dangerous campaign going to work and all the way through it you had all these other little projects bubbling under the scenes and there was another level of discussion around those so it just helped build this community very very quickly and now we've all moved on to the forums you can see again yeah, this level of community, it's massively, um, 
busy on all the forums. I just hope that continues from start to finish. But what we're going to do with the community corner is over the weeks, we're going to basically keep you guys involved. We're going to speak to some of the writers, find out a little bit more about the projects that are going on. Uh, We're quite fortunate in the fact that Alan has a little bit of a, or should we say, uh, a finger in the pie. Inside track is the word. Is that inside track? Fingers in the pie of the community, should we say. Um, Fingers in pie sounds dirty. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Alan, do you want to take your fingers out of the pie long enough to tell us exactly what your level of involvement with the community is? Yeah, sure. No, um, my, basically I, I approached Frontier at the end of the, the Kickstarter and being the fact that I teach writing and specifically I teach writing fantasy and science fiction, um, I approached Frontier and I approached some of the writers and said, look, do you want a hand? Do you want someone who can who can edit a bit? And also uh, I did a research master's degree in, in building fantasy worlds. Um, Frontier, do you want a hand in mapping out your background and, and sorting out sort of how the, you know, the, the mechanics of the world would work from from the fiction's point of view um and i got a very very positive response from everybody really um so now i'm i'm kind of writing stuff that the writers then use to base some of their ideas from um obviously i'm still you know i i I don't i don't get to say yes this is the way it will be this is the way this will be um actually what i do is i we, we come up with an idea of something that might be an area that that we need to explore. I go away and write something. It then goes to to David, to Michael, and to Andrew Gillette, and the three of them sit together, decide whether they like it or not, and then come back to me with some comments. I see if I can include the comments, and then it goes forward, and eventually it gets rubber stamped, and then goes into the writers' forum. So, and then the writers can kind of look at the the material and go, okay, I can use it like this, and I can use it like that, and so on and so forth. So, where have you been, sort of? Um getting your information from how much of it's from your own head how much of it is from sort of mining the resources that went before in terms of the uh, gazetteer and stuff like that well i've i've had to go through every piece of published material that i could find in in all three games Ouch. so i've 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 dug out my original copies of of elite my original copies of frontier um <laughs> and everything i could i could find and you know sort of get from friends of my my copies of first encounters i have to say that's not just me you know um there are other people engaged in that as well dave hughes who's the um the author of the the elite uh, encounters which is going to be the the role-playing game um he's also done an awful lot of work and to be fair dave hughes held a candle out for this game for many years trying to to sort of resolve some of the 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 differences between elite and frontier um that were, were quite distinct um, and similarly, we've got um, some of the other writers who are involved in writing guides as well. So they're, they're you know, setting campaign information, um, you know, as things go. So, so yeah, so it's not just me. And Michael Brooks has obviously has gone through some of the um, uh, the short story collection as well and, and teased out the bits that are, this is how this was done in the past. This is how this was done in the past. And it, I'd, I'd stress, we can't promise that everything's going to work the same way because at the end of the day, you know, there's so many more tools in the box, so many more toys that, you know, that, that could be much cooler than they were, you know, in 95, 93 and 85. But certainly there is a real effort to ransack all of that literature for every reference we can find and try and make that current for the for the new game. 
Excellent. Now, I know, does Dave have a website? I think I stumbled across it, which yes, has Dave, all the timelines. Yeah, Dave Hughes does. He has darfworks.co.uk. Now, that's Dave's own suppositions as to what might have happened. Um, what actually happened with, in, in, in terms of getting him involved was um, having got uh, sort of Michael um, and, uh, and the others uh, sort of on board with the idea that I would do some of the work on this. I actually, the first place I went was to Dave's website. And I then contacted Dave and said, you know, I'm really interested in, in sort of how you've come about these conclusions. And then we gradually started talking and I brought Dave in so that, you know, so the rest of the team would uh, would sort of take some of his ideas too. And it's, you know, it's an incredibly exciting process, really. Excellent. Chris, as the, you are the the only elite fan that didn't hear about the Kickstarter, you were the only elite fan that we didn't find underneath the rock somewhere. Um, <laughs> what's your uh, experience been of the community? I mean, have you had a look and seen what the uh, what projects are out there? Yeah, it's amazing and it's really enticing. I mean, I don't really remember anything like it since... I don't know, I used to be involved in the Lionhead forums uh, years back and really this is the first community I've seen that seems to have that same kind of thing binding them together of everyone seems to know each other and everyone's commenting on each other's stuff. Yeah, and there's a lot of, um, there's just there's just so many projects kind of going on. I think there's something like, what are there, like 15 different projects going on in like the the, uh, the sort of fiction forums? There's a lot anyway, and I mean it's, and that includes everything from kind of short story stuff to full novels to like fully sort of professionally published stuff and it's just for me it's just really exciting to come in and and see all this stuff happening absolutely i mean there is the uh i think it's 10 books uh fan created book projects there's obviously the three uh, official published books from galant and then there's the official follow-up but michael brooks is doing to the uh the dark wheel yeah um and what um maybe you have more of an insight on this what to the other types of projects obviously we know there's uh, there's the straightforward book projects what else is going on well you've also got um with certainly with kate russell's piece um she's been able to raise enough funding through her kickstarter to fund an audiobook so um there'll be a, a an audio rendition of uh, of mostly harmless um which would be really good and she's kind of um looking at the the same sort of model i think uh, as they use at Big Finish, which is the the stuff they do with Doctor Who, so yeah. um, it'd be really interesting to see how that comes out. And that's really exciting. I think uh, for me, audio drama is really exciting. And I think I, I'm I'm personally almost at a thing where I almost listen to more audio drama now than I kind of watch TV. So that's a project I'm going to be keeping a close eye on because uh, yeah, it's exciting. I'll be I'll be following that. <laughs> exciting, not least because we hear that David Braben actually has a cameo piece. Uh, to microphone on that one as well. Brilliant. Well, you know more than I do on that. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, <laughs> I I was one of the people that managed to get up to seventeen thousand, so uh, I did back that project as well. Um, actually, I, I I dread to think how much money I plowed into those uh, the sideline projects, but um, <laughs> yeah. So we have we've got um, you know we've got the audio books, we've got uh, the role playing game, which I think is going to be. I mean, it's fascinating that, uh, that you can have a role-playing game out of the Elite Universe. Obviously, we've got the Chronicles, which is uh, you know, lots of small short stories, um, as well as the the big fan fiction. Are we still calling it fan fiction, or, or should we call it something else? The fan think, fiction just you... seems a little bit, uh, you know, as it's official and as it's going to be canon, fan fiction just seems a little bit wrong. Yeah, no, I don't think you should call it fan fiction at all. I think um, it really isn't. And if you look at the quality of some of the people who are involved... 
you know, they wouldn't describe themselves as fan fiction writers in any way, shape or form. This is, this is you know, this is professional writing. And at the end of the day, um, you know, the possibility after the, you know, the, the game's produced uh, in March 2014, you know, you kind of wonder where that's going to go from there. I mean, obviously, the, the writing packs are for one, one publication, and that's totally fine. But at the end of the day, if, the, if this is going to be a, a game that's successful and going to be popular, you know, it could be that we'll end up coming back here and, you know, there'll be a whole load of new fiction as well produced after that. I just want to oh, I just want to interject and just say, you know, um obviously, yeah, Alan's got a point, you know, this is this is a very serious thing. You know, people aren't just been able to write whatever they want. But in the same token, I don't think it is like a dichotomy of it's either fan fiction or it is professional. I think it can be both things and I'm hoping that it's gonna be professionally done because of people like Alan who are making sure that um, you know, everything's consistent and that people have the support they need. But at the same time I'm really hoping that people's passion for the franchise comes through in the stories. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that, John. I think um, you know, I, I it it's difficult. Yeah, you know, the, the the term fan fiction is bandied around an awful lot uh with regards to, you know, in different stories and genres and uh, Fifty Shades, 50 shades of, of Grey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, all sorts of different things. But um, I, I think you've got here, you've got the best of, of both. You've got the fan enthusiasm and you've got the, the professional quality. And that, that's the two things we want to weld together. Um, certainly, I mean, you know, you, you've only got to read some of Drew's stuff or some of Michael Brooks's stuff to know that you're dealing with very, very proficient writers. And indeed, I've actually I've booked Drew. I I booked him. You know, uh, I I backed him from the beginning practically. Uh, and also, I'm interested in backing the RPG. And I suppose Alan, if 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 you ever did something, I'd probably back that as well. Well, you know, you've led me on there, John, because actually that's that's leading us right into uh, into into our end, um, which uh, I'm sure Foz. He's going to hate you for stealing his thunder. Slightly. No, absolutely not. I'm too busy wetting myself laughing at such a, a blatant segue. Um, <laughs> so professionally done as well. The, uh, as uh, I was going to say, Alan, as our, as our special uh, feature of the day, I think you actually, apart from doing, obviously, all the, the background writing for uh, all the other community writers are actually going to be relying on, you do actually have, a little bit out of the bag, but a big reveal as well. Yeah, no, um, as of... 9 a.m. Friday, 22nd of February. Um, well, if I get it done at 9 a.m., uh, hopefully I'll be up in time. I think I will be. Uh, the Kickstarter for Elite Lave Revolution goes live, which is the book that I'm writing uh, as part of the uh, the whole uh, um, whole release. So yeah, no, I'm I'm hoping very much to to enlist people's support to support my book. And um, you know, and make it part of the experience. I'm I'm really keen to make sure because Lave is part of everybody's uh, sort of background in relation to Elite. You know, we're LaveRadio.com, so you know that kind of says something as well. But Lave was the planet you started on. Lave is is integral to you know to a lot of people's experiences of of Elite in the first place, and it needs a story. And we know in 3300 AD. Lave is a democracy, whereas in all the previous games, it's been a dictatorship. So Elite Lave Revolution is going to tell you just how that happened. Ooh, I can't wait 
I was going to say, it uh, it does sound extremely exciting, Alan. I can't wait for the Kickstarter. So if we went to Kickstarter, we could either find you by Alan Stroud or by Labour Revolution, do you think? Yeah, I would think so. As I say, it'll go live tomorrow morning. So um, I'm kind of hoping then that, it, you know, any any project, most of the projects that um, that have been listed on there, as soon as you type in Elite, they come up. So certainly Elite Encounters comes up at the moment because it's the current project. I'm anticipating that I'll be right next to it and uh, couldn't be in better company than sitting next to Dave Hughes. Perfect. Excellent. Well, uh, we, shall, uh, we shall track. How long is the Kickstarter running for, Alan? It's running for 30 days. Perfect. So we'll have lots of stuff to talk about over the next 30 days in terms of your run rate and how you're going and what your various updates are going to be. So it'll actually be quite interesting for the podcast to be able to follow through a Kickstarter project from start to finish as well. And, uh, you know, maybe you can give us a bit of an insight in the next episode as to what it takes to set one of these things up. Uh, I know it's not quite as straightforward as uh, some of us might think it is. Yeah, no, absolutely. Happy to, you know, happy to have my brain picked in any way that's possible. And uh, and obviously, I'm assuming there'll be more questions and we'll take questions uh, from from any of the, the people on the forums. We can obviously take questions in relation to some of the campaign work as well. And obviously, you can email the podcast by using info at laveradio.com. Perfect. So without any further ado, guys, that's going to wrap it up for this first episode of Lave Radio. Um, tune in next time where we will have more fantastic elite news for you. Cheers. Cheers.